Welcome to our Soul Food Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Normally on Easter, I bring an Easter message, but as I thought about all the different passages I could have expounded upon, I actually think that our normal progression in 2 Samuel gives us a profound insight into what the resurrection is all about. I hope by the end of our time that you agree with me. In his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, Philip Yancey writes of a friend who overheard a conversation on a bus one day. A woman was reading, and the man sitting next to her asked her what she was reading. She replied it was M. Scott Peck's bestseller, The Road Less Traveled. The man asked what it was about. Admitting that she had just begun the book, she answered by reading him the title chapters and from the table of contents. And when she mentioned the section on grace, the man interrupted her and asked, what's grace about? She replied, I haven't gotten that far yet. And you know what? The same thing can be said about the Bible. No matter how much scripture you read, study, or memorize, you have not gotten too far into scripture if you do not know what grace is about. Without oversimplifying the message of these 66 expansive books, the Bible is about the glory of the grace of God, which is most powerfully illustrated in the resurrection of Christ that we celebrate today. So let me ask you, what do you think of when you hear the word grace? We refer to a ballet dancer as having grace. We say grace at meals. We talk about the Queen of England bringing grace to the events that she attends. And now sure enough, grace can mean coordination of movement. It can mean prayer. And it can refer to dignity and elegance. But to the Christian, grace means far more. Grace is unmerited favor. It's God's free action for the benefit of his people. Grace is different than justice and mercy. Justice is getting what we deserve. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. If you get pulled over doing 80 in a school zone and the cop gives you a ticket, that's justice. If he lets you off with a warning, that's mercy. 
But if he goes back to his car, retrieves a box, and brings you his last seven donuts, well, now, that's grace. <laughs> Jeff, I'm talking local police, not state police. <laughs> Don't want the one MMA fighter in here mad at me. And uh, in second chapter, or, second, or chapter 9 of 2 Samuel was really all about that grace. Look at verse 1 with me. Now David said, is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? At this point in our story, David has been on the throne for approximately 10 to 15 years. I don't know what jarred David's memory, but in thinking about the past, his thoughts turned towards his dear friend Jonathan. Perhaps overwhelmed by the Lord's goodness, the middle-aged king begins to muse over all of his blessings. And maybe while doing so, he encountered a nostalgic moment and remembered his long-lost friendship with Jonathan. Are there any survivors from Saul's family to whom I can show kindness, he asked. Now, the word kindness is the Hebrew word hasid. It's where we get the term Hasidic Jew. A Hasidic Jew is one who is extremely loyal and faithful to the law. But in this case, it's someone who is loyal and faithful to a relationship. The fascinating thing in all this is that Hasid is a word that is often used in Scripture to describe God's love for us. We have been made in the image of God or the object of his loving kindness or his Hasid. Even though at one time or another, we either shook an angry fist in God's face or we walked away from him in passive indifference. Either way, the Lord never gave up on us. In his loving kindness, his Hased, God sent his son to die on the cross for our sins. He paid the penalty we deserve and instead extended to us mercy and grace. And although we don't have time to explore the idea in full detail this morning, the account of David's Hased towards Mephibosheth is a beautiful picture of how God extends his grace to us, even though we are not deserving of that grace. And he does that even though we have nothing to offer him. And we are completely undeserving of any grace that he gives us. Verse 2, please. And there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. So when they called him to David, the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, At your service. Then the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. Well, David couldn't show any loving kindness to Jonathan, so he looked for one of Jonathan's relatives that he could express his affection towards. So it is with God's children. They are called and saved, not because of anything they deserve, but for the sake of God's Son, Jesus Christ. The Bible says that we are accepted in the Beloved. Now, much later in this book, we will learn that Ziba was not telling David the entire truth. There were other surviving members of Saul's family. But the impression given to David is that this one son of Jonathan was the only one left of Saul's household. Now, why was that? This is just my opinion, so I always tell you this is the part you don't take notes on. 
But notice that Ziba also makes a point of adding the information that Mephibosheth is crippled in both his feet. Now, do you know why I think he includes this information? The rule of that day was if Mephibosheth doesn't get the wealth, then it would go to Ziba, the servant. And so Ziba says, yeah, there is this one guy left, but you don't want to waste any time on him. He can't even work the land you're going to give him. He's crippled, David. He can't work or do anything of any use. All the guy can do is eat. He goes to that Calvary Chapel around the corner. That may not be in your Bible. Um, in chapter 19, we're going to learn what a conniving little weasel the Zeba really is. Verse 4. So the king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Indeed, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Emil, in Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him out of the house of Machir, the son of Emil, from Lodabar. Just to remind us, when Mephibosheth was five years old, his father and grandfather died at the hands of the Philistines. Knowing the brutality of the Philistines, the family of Saul all headed for the hills. Mephibosheth's nurse snatched him up and ran, but she tripped and dropped the boy. The result of that was it left him lame. So now Mephibosheth lives with a label. He is a cripple. And so at this point, he has spent somewhere between 10 to 20 years hiding from King David. His constant fear would be that one day the king would find him and kill him. But the crazy thing is, at one time, Mephibosheth lived in a palace, sleeping in the most comfortable of settings, running in the spacious hallways, eating the very best of the food. But now he's living in the house of Makir, a word which meant sold, in a place called Lodabar, which would be translated, no pasture. It was a place that was desolate and filled with poverty. That was us. We were all residing in Lodabar. Mephibosheth was in a barren land, but he is certainly not alone. I think many Christians today find themselves in Lodabar. It's a barren place. Are they saved? Yes. But because of choices they may have made, they find themselves in a place that seems barren spiritually. And they feel that they are dying one lost hope at a time. And honestly, you couldn't blame Mephibosheth for being afraid. In Old Testament times, if a king from a different family than the previous one came to power, he would kill all of the relatives of the previous king in order to eliminate any rivals. And so his life was filled with desperation and fear. Then... One day his greatest fears were realized. Can you even imagine the knock at the door? Makir opened the door to see the king's guard standing there. And then Mephibosheth was told to accompany them to see King David. I can almost imagine him saying, well, this is it. It's over. There's no use running even if I could, so I might as well just face it. Truth be told, I'm tired of hiding. So let's just get this over with. I know what's in store for me. This is certainly not a dinner invitation. 
But the crazy thing is, unknown to him, in fact, it was just that. It was a dinner invitation and so much more. He might have been carried to a chariot that raced across the blistering sands heading back to Jerusalem. Perhaps tears streamed down his face as he prepared to meet his fate. It must have been absolutely terrifying for him to be taken from Lodabar and brought all that way back to Jerusalem to the king who had been his grandfather's most bitter enemy. And while the king's men may not have used force to bring him, I doubt the poor refugee felt that he had any choice in the matter. But what I love about this story is, in fact, that it's so much like our story. Think about it. In the beginning, we also were privileged. We were supposed to live in the Garden of Eden. We were privileged to live in the very presence of God Almighty. We were children of royalty, children of the king of all creation. But a terrible event happens to humanity, and we also fall and become crippled. Not necessarily physically, but our crippling event is sin. Paul reminds us in Romans 3.23 these words, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The sin of Adam and Eve drove them away from God. And even today, sin continues to draw people further and further away from the Lord. We are driven, just like Mephibosheth, into the land of Lodabar, the land of barrenness. So just like Mephibosheth, we were destined to live in hopelessness, to live in emptiness and in constant fear of the king's anger. But then something happens, something unexpected, something undeserved. The king himself initiates a search. So you see, the story of Mephibosheth is like our story. Because of our sin, we deserve God's wrath and punishment. But God, for the sake of another, instead extends to us mercy and grace. The fact that David made the first move to rescue Mephibosheth reminds us that it was God who reached out to us and not us who sought the Lord. Verse 6. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face and prostrated himself. Then David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Here is your servant. So David said to him, Do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake, and will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. So we see Mephibosheth come into the presence of King David and immediately he falls on his face in reverence to the king. Once again, we can only imagine how terrified he must have been. But Je David speaks just one word that changes the entire scene. He speaks Mephibosheth's name. And something in the way that David spoke his name ministered to Mephibosheth's heart. I have no doubt there was kindness in David's words. I cannot help but think of Jesus at the garden tomb. Mary was there weeping over the fact that his body was no longer in the tomb. In her turmoil, she thought she was conversing with a man who was the gardener. But he wasn't the gardener. He was actually the garden from which all life springs. 
And when he said, Mary, suddenly, in the very way he spoke her name, she identified him as her master. Let me interrupt our story to ask you a question about Jesus. Do you know what the most often repeated command from his lips was? The Lord issued many commands, but he made this one more than any other. It was this, do not fear. Now, naturally, the most common reaction when someone stood before the perfect son of God would be fear and awe. And yet Jesus, great in grace, repeatedly said, do not be afraid. He didn't meet people with a frown, looking down on them and swinging a club. No, he met them with open arms and reassuring words. Don't be afraid. These are the very words that David used for Mephibosheth, and they absolutely drip with grace. It's okay, David said to Mephibosheth. Don't be afraid. It's not what you think. And just like that, a lot of times for us also, it's not what we think. We think, I'm so lame. I've been so far from, away from God and his ways. And if the king is calling for me today, it's probably because he wants to lop my head off or at least shake me up a little bit. But the next verse shows us that things are not always what we think. As we have seen, the reason for this promised kindness had to do with a commitment that David had made before Mephibosheth had ever even been born. Mephibosheth did nothing to deserve this kindness. The promise had a basis and purpose that did not depend upon Mephibosheth. Can you see yourself now this morning in the same place that Mephibosheth was in? Christ loved you, came down and brought you out of the miry pit of clay, and set your feet upon a rock in the very house of the king of heaven. He brings us forth to inherit all the goodness of God and the glory of heaven with himself. He provides all of our needs according to the riches of his glory. Jesus has said to every one of us, come and dine at my father's house and eat at his table all the days of your life. He prepares before us a table in the presence of our enemies. And if we are Christians, we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It is kind of ironic that David had eaten at Saul's table and if you remember, it had nearly cost him his life a couple of times as Saul was fond of chucking spears at people during dinner time. But Mephibosheth would eat at David's table and his life would be forever protected. Verse 8, please. And he bowed himself and said, What is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? And calling himself a dead dog, he used the most descriptive words he can think of for a contemptuous, despicable, and worthless creature. I'm just a dead dog living in Lodabar. Why don't you just leave me in my misery? Remember when you said that to God? Candidly, this is one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament because his portrayal of grace is so powerful. Who among us this morning haven't meandered along the dry sand of Lodabar. The Bible says that none of us would have sought God had he not drawn us first. How many of you said, when your mother woke you up on Sunday morning, get up, it's time to go to church, ever replied, oh, hasten, mother, that I might learn the holy things of God? Yeah, me neither. 
But I suggest to you that there are some people in this room who have not spent any significant time with the Lord this week. Why? Because the enemy has told you that you are lame. And you, like Mephibosheth, may be asking the Lord, why me? Perhaps your troubles have made you spiritually lame. You cannot walk in the way of the Lord that you used to. Your support systems are broken. Your life seems out of joint. Maybe you wonder even if God has actually become your enemy. You fear him. And so in your helplessness and your hopelessness, you are running from him, fleeing his presence. Like Adam in the garden, you have said to the Lord, I heard you in the garden, Lord, but I was afraid, and so I hid. In other words, I was ashamed, Lord. I was lame and out of joint, and I fear you. I have no business being in your presence. And then you heard his call to you. You expect the worst, judgment and wrath, but instead you are totally surprised by his grace. Look at verse 9 with me. And the king called Aziba Saul's servant and said to him, I have given to your master's son all that belonged to Saul and all to his house. You therefore and your sons and your servants shall work the land for him, you shall bring in the harvest, that your master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall eat bread at my table always. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king has commanded his servant, so will your servant do. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who dwelt in the house of Ziba were servants of Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he ate continually at the king's table, and he was lame in both of his feet. So we see that David commands that Ziba and his servants will work the land, so Mephibosheth's family will always be provided for. But here's what I want us to get this morning. David could have sent money to Lodabar. A lifelong annuity would have generously fulfilled the promise that he made to Jonathan. But David gave Mephibosheth more than a pension. He gave him a place, a place at the royal table. We read that Mephibosheth ate continually at the king's table. Now, don't get the idea that he was eating 24 hours a day until he looked like Jabba the Hutt. I don't want to confuse you since earlier I did tell you he went to Calvary Chapel, Jerusalem. It just means that from that point on, he continued to join everyone else who ate at the king's table. The man who had no legs to stand on has everything now to live for. Why? Because he impressed David, convinced David, coerced David. No, Mephibosheth did nothing. A promise prompted David. The king is kind, not because the man is deserving, but because the promise is enduring. But every time he came to the table, the limp was obvious. And in that stone palace, you could probably hear him coming. Clump thud, clump thud, clump thud. Why would I bring that out? In the same way, even when we are as Christians adopted into God's family and eat at his table, our humanity still lingers with us. Over and over again, we are reminded of how weak that we are how insufficient in ourselves that we are, and how sinful we can be if we don't rely on the Lord. In some ways, we are still crippled. Now, don't misunderstand me. 
We are called to overcome and to obey God. But that struggle with our flesh will be with us until the day that we die. We eat at the Lord's table in spite of our condition, not because we have overcome in our own strength, but because of what God has done for us. But each time we yield to a temptation, we are hearing the clump thud, clump thud of our condition. We should never forget our need and dependence upon God. And as a sermon within a sermon, I'm sure David never reminded Mephibosheth that he was a cripple. Not only that, I bet that no one else who ate at that table ever mentioned it either. Why is that? Because they would have recognized that since David had embraced and accepted Mephibosheth, they had better follow suit or they wouldn't be sitting there long themselves. What does that teach us this morning? Whoever the Lord embraces, we have no right to reject. If the Lord doesn't find fault with someone, I have no right to point my finger at them. If the Lord bids someone to sit at his table, I have no right to mock or criticize. We haven't earned our position with God. It doesn't matter how long or how fervently we have served the Lord. We stand where we do only because of Christ. Just like this son stood where he was because of his father, Jonathan. So we shouldn't boast. We shouldn't compare our record of service with the record of others as though we are somehow more worthy to God than they are. We eat at God's table just like all other Christians, and we enjoy the benefits of family membership only because Christ suffered on our behalf. Notice the text says that he is still crippled in both feet. Likewise, I remind us once again, we are also still crippled as long as we live in this tent of flesh. The only difference is now we live in his presence and we can sit at his table. You know what's so great about that? When we sit at the Lord's table, our crippled feet are hidden underneath it. And that is something to rejoice about. I really like what Chuck Swindle says about the ending of this story. He writes, Imagine a typical scene several years later. The setting is the palace of King David. Gold and bronze fixtures gleam from the walls. Lofty wooden ceilings crown each spacious room. The dinner bell rings through the king's palace, and David comes to the head of the table and sits down. In a few moments, Amnon, Clever, crafty Amnon sets to the left of David. Lovely and gracious Tamar, a charming and beautiful young woman, arrives and sits beside Amnon. And then across the way, Solomon walks slowly from his study. Precocious, brilliant, preoccupied Solomon. The heir apparent slowly sits down. And then Absalom, handsome, winsome Absalom, with beautiful flowing hair down to his shoulders, sits down. Then they all wait. They hear the shuffling of feet, the clump, clump, clump of the crutches. As Mephibosheth rather awkwardly finds his place at the table and slips into his feet and the tablecloth covers his feet. Now fast forward onto an unknown time in the future. Imagine the golden banquet hall of heaven. The room is filled with light. The glory of God is literally radiating about the place. It is warm, calm, and relaxing. The doors open and the masses of people enter. But instead of the mighty and handsome in hobble, the sick, the lame, and the disfigured, those whose lives were broken by the crippling effects of sin, 
And when we look under the table at the marriage feast of the Lamb, we'll discover that we all had crippled feet. As we close, when he came to David's table, did Mephibosheth walk straight? No. He was still lame in both of his feet. He was still affected by the sin of the fall. So why is it that when Jesus says, come and dine, we say, I can't, I'm too lame. The Lord calls us just as we are to come and dine with him. He calls you, you in the state that you're in to receive the grace that he has for you this morning. The table is set, and the table is the only place where lame, twisted, crippled feet can't be seen. Are you burdened because you're always looking at your flaws or your shortcomings? Or are you blessed this morning as you partake of the abundance of the grace and mercy at the king's table? Understand that many of us this morning have been dropped brutally in life. But you must understand that you don't have to remain in that condition day after year after decade. Jesus was broken that you might be healed. And his blood was shed to wash away the sin and that memory that haunts you this morning. Come and dine, and you'll find yourself back in the land where perhaps you thought you once were or that you longed to be. Mephibosheth accepted the king's invitation. May we do the same. God's grace isn't dependent upon our abilities, but upon his. When you can't walk any further, his grace will carry you. When you can't believe anymore, his grace will keep you. When you're weak, his grace will be strong. Grace is where we can abandon our crippled past. And this morning we have an opportunity to experience a shadow of what will one day be reality as we partake of the Lord's communion this morning. I'm going to have Jeannie Klein come up first and sing a song, and then I'll have our elders come up and give us communion. <laughs>